1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Internal Programs here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I just wanted to thank you all for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium and take the opportunity to remind everyone attending in person to please silence your cell phones. Um, And for those who are watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Uh, Additionally, today's program will be uh, broadcast and recorded and will be available online within 24 hours. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce the moderator of today's program, Genevieve Wood. She is the senior advisor and spokesperson for the Heritage Foundation. Genevieve.
1: Thank
3: you. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for being here. Uh, confronting the national debt seems like a topic that we've been talking about for a long time. But increasingly, it seems as the economy is doing well and as we increasingly add to the debt, many Americans begin to wonder, does it really matter at all? Uh, And if it does, how does it actually impact our economy? How does it impact us personally? And what do we do to actually get this thing under control? And those are some of the questions that we're going to talk about uh, this afternoon. And as Andrew mentioned, hopefully get your questions in as well. We have a great panel lined up for the discussion. Uh, Let me introduce them first. Mark Goldwine is the Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, where he guides and conducts research on a wide array of topics related to fiscal policy and the Federal budget. In 2010, Mark served as Associate Director of the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, and in 2011, he was a Senior Budget Analyst on the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction. Mark, thank you for being here. Then two of my colleagues from the Heritage Foundation, first David Ditch, who is a research associate at the Heritage Foundation, focused on federal spending and physical policy. Prior to joining Heritage, David was a budget analyst with the Senate Budget Committee, where he oversaw appropriations and agriculture. And then Romina Bacha, who is the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget here at Heritage, and where she oversees the production of the Blueprint for Balance. Many of you picked up a copy of that uh, when you came in. If you didn't get a copy, if you're watching online, you can go to heritage.org, backslash backslash, uh, Blueprint for Balance and get a copy there as well. Uh, Romina's work is focused on the national debt, fiscal rules, and worker freedom. Thank you all very much for your time. So, Mark, we're going to begin with you and I'm going to come over here and sit next to you so we can actually have a discussion. Sounds good. First off, let's let's talk about why does the debt actually matter? I mean, as we as we look at the landscape and we've had this discussion going on and on as we add to it, now we're at close to $22 trillion in counting. Why does it actually matter?
4: Sure. So there there are a few key reasons that I worry about debt. And by the way, as a share of the economy, debt now is Larger than any time in our history outside of World War II. Uh, the text I teach an economics course and the textbook reason we were about debt is what's called crowd out. the idea that people are buying government bonds instead of buying private stocks or private bonds or otherwise investing in the private sector. That doesn't matter too much in year one or year two, but over time that results in slower wage growth, slower income growth, and a smaller overall economy. Uh, in addition, we have to worry about interest rates and interest payments. On the debt. By next year, we'll spend more as a government on interest than on Medicaid. Right? In five years, we'll spend more in interest than on defense. Think about it. We'll spend more servicing our past than defending our country. And within 30 years, interest will be the single largest federal government program. Um, I'll, I'll give two more quick um, reasons to worry about the debt. One is sometimes debt is good. Sometimes we need to borrow when we're in a financial crisis or recession. But the larger that our debt is during good times, the less room we have, the less fiscal space we have to borrow when we absolutely need it. And, and lastly, we're setting ourselves up for a fiscal crisis. Uh, we, we borrow in our own currency. We're the world's stro- strongest economy. We're not going to default on our debt. But if we continue on our current course, we could cause a global financial crisis. We could cause a an finan- a inflation crisis. We could cause an austerity crisis. And I don't know how it's going to play out, but I really don't want to find out.
3: You mentioned, though, that people you know buy U.S. bonds, they invest in our economy. Why isn't that actually a good thing? You said it's not actually helping the economy, but it sounds like it would be.
4: Well, it's better they buy our bonds than they don't buy our bonds, right? Because um, then we'd really be in trouble. But the issue is people are buying U.S. bonds instead of investing in the private sector. Now, most U.S. debt goes to pay for transfers and consumptions. Those, those are important programs for people, but they don't do anything to, to grow the macroeconomy. They move money around. Most private investment ends up in capital and things like building, equipment, tools, software, research and development, uh, education. And that's what actually grows the economy over
3: time. Talking about focusing, you know, as I mentioned, the opening, the economy is doing very well right now, right? Most people would say, hey, look, unemployment continues to go down. Wages have been actually going up. The economy seems to be growing. What about the idea that we can just grow our way out of the debt, out of the deficit?
4: It it really is wishful thinking. We would need something like four to five percent annual real economic growth to grow to grow our way out of the debt. Um, To give you some comparison, basically every forecaster out there, from blue chips to um, Moody's to the Federal Reserve, they all say we're going to grow about two percent per year. President Trump says we're going to go three percent a year, and we would need four to five percent a year. So it's just not going to happen.
3: Talk about modern monetary theory. First of all, give us a definition of that. Give us a definition.
4: Wow, well, you, you asked two impossible questions. But <laughs> the basic idea behind modern monetary theory is instead of borrowing, um, instead of selling bonds to, to cover our deficits, we should print money to cover our deficits, and we should sort of change the institutions around that. And that that could work in theory, um, but every time it's been tried in practice, it's resulted in hyperinflation. Um, and and I, I don't think that the MMT folks have, have reconciled with this fact that whether it's the Weimar Republic, um, whether whether it's Argentina, whether it's the Roman Empire, whether it's Zimbabwe, anytime countries have tried to print money as an alternative to issuing bonds to get out of their debt, um, it's spelled hyperinflation and economic disaster.
3: We're going to get into some of the solutions here, but one of the things I want to ask you before we when I move on to to David, you've worked on the committees and on, on the Hill in terms of the groups who have said yes, we're going to get a hold of this thing. Why has it not worked?
4: Yeah, I, I have a lot of experience failing to fix the debt. <laughs> um,
3: I didn't know, want to put it so yeah, bluntly in, in in sort of
4: 2011 and 2014 we were actually very close to getting a bipartisan deal a few times not only did the Simpson-Bowles plan have support of 11 of 18 of our members including you know Tom Coburn and Dick Durbin who we couldn't get to agree what day it was but they still agreed on the plan but um, President Obama and Speaker Boehner several times came close to a deal um, and the super committee came closer than I think people realize but um, they, they just they just couldn't get there and now I'm worried it's too late, because since 2015, we've really been moving in the opposite direction. Since 2015, every major piece of legislation has been about increasing the debt to the point where um, I don't see sort of a grand bargain um, as particularly plausible, at least in the next decade. Uh, hopefully, we can solve this incrementally. Like, we all agree health care costs are out of control. Let's start there. We all know Social Security needs to be made solvent. Let's do that next. Um, but I, I think we missed our window for that Grand bargain mm-hmm. to actually fix the debt
3: all at once. All right, let's get David in on this and talking about some of those solutions. David, first of all, let's just talk about the, the idea. I mean, and, and Mark touched on it. Touched on it. The debt limit. I and mean, we hear a lot about the debt limit. Uh, we've heard Congress talk about the fact that they we live with a debt limit. But I think everybody knows nobody pays attention to those rules. Do we really actually have a debt limit that keeps Congress and government in check?
0: For many years, we did have a functional debt limit. And unfortunately, what Congress had, has shifted to, especially over the last decade, is rather than having a hard dollar amount, they'll say, "Oh, we're going to suspend the debt limit for one or two or three years," which means that they it becomes sort of an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> in fact, you can also you can almost think about budgeting in terms of a diet. You want to stay within a certain caloric limit. You want to exercise a certain amount to stay healthy. And if you suspend the debt limit or suspend the caloric limit, you start binging, you're going to have negative consequences as a result. Uh, Typically, what has ended up happening in the past when we run into the debt limit is it forces lawmakers to confront it, and that that gives frankly, leverage uh, to fiscal hawks, to people who care about the debt and deficits, and that can oftentimes lead to reforms. In fact, many of uh, the largest fiscal reforms in the nation's history, including the Budget Control Act of 2011, were passed as a result of bumping up against the debt limit. If we continue to suspend the debt limit automatically, and especially if we do what lawmakers seem to be leaning towards this year, which is, to couple a debt limit increase with increasing spending caps, that gets it exactly backwards.
3: Well, and to that point, I mean, you talk about 2011. There were budget cap- caps put into place uh, that were completely blown through. So when when the public hears this discussion and debate of we're going to have spending caps, we're going to have a debt limit, what kind of hope is it that this – or how do you actually get to a place where those have real meaning, they have
0: real enforcement ability? we need to change what's normal. We need to change what is expected of our nation's political leaders. Uh, too often times, they're able to skirt by irresponsibility and not face meaningful consequences down the road. So, for example, when deficit-increasing legislation is passed, it's supposed to be coupled with a back-end mechanism called PAGO, which would force Congress to reconcile it later by saving money. Unfortunately, Congress has a history of wiping the PAGO scorecard clean or retroactively saying, oh, we don't want that piece of legislation to count because ultimately what they're saying is we don't want to have to deal with the consequences of our own choices.
3: Let's talk about the blueprint for balance, which you have worked on under, uh, and Romina's had a huge part in this. What are some of the dis- some specific examples that we would put forward, Heritage has put forward, saying, here's how to go about it. Maybe there's not going to be a grand bargain, but here's how we start cutting back and chipping it away at the debt that we've actually built.
0: The blueprint for balance is a hefty volume. It requires effort from dozens of analysts here at Heritage and also some people who aren't here anymore it is built off of the work that has come from previous editions and we offer over 250 discrete policy ideas uh, some of most of which are focused on reducing spending but some of which are also reforming the tax code uh, which you know getting rid of some of the uh, special interest carve outs that don't frankly benefit the economy the way they're touted to. And while obviously we don't expect all 300-plus pages of this document to be set into law tomorrow, there are lots of policy prescriptions in here that frankly should either be, we think, bipartisan or that all, in some cases, um, would, in some cases, you are going after Uh, what are considered to be right-leaning constituencies, in some cases left-leaning constituencies. But at the end of the day, it would maintain the core functions of the federal government. It would make the federal government small enough that Congress could do proper oversight of what's going on here in Washington, D.C., and it would leave the nation on a path towards fiscal sustainability.
3: One of the the, uh, more contentious areas, and again, Mark touched on this, was what do you do about the main drivers of the debt, which are Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security? Without getting into a whole entitlements discussion here, what what would be some of the specific measures of how we address those pieces uh, in the the big picture?
0: It's important to take a step back here and to understand what has happened with Social Security and Medicare. They're broadly popular programs, and people have an understanding that they pay a certain amount in and they get a certain amount back when they retire. Unfortunately, the programs were set up for a specific period in time, so people lived a certain amount uh, of years. Now, unfortunately, life expectancy has gone up, but unfortunately, the programs have not adjusted to it. So people are living longer, they're retired longer, which means that they're getting more in benefits than they put in almost across the board. That is especially the case for Medicare. People receive oftentimes three, four, five fold in share of benefits compared to what they paid in because the co share, the premiums, are set artificially low. The Blueprint for Balance envisions tweaks to Social Security to adjust it for uh, life expectancy such that people are – it gets back to where it was, where people are getting back what they paid in but aren't getting a huge premium on top of it.
3: I want to continue, and let me move down to Romina now, talking a little bit more about solutions, and then we'll come back to discuss, I think, with, all, with everyone here, uh, what happens if we don't implement some of these? I mean, what, what are we looking at as, as a country and perhaps in, of course, the world economy? So, Romina, one of the big things that has been talked about for many years – I don't even know how far back it goes. Maybe, was it 1994, 96? the balanced budget amendment? Uh, there's been different variations of that. How important is something like a balanced budget amendment to getting our fiscal house in order?
1: Yeah, we talked a little bit about the economic implications of the rising uh, national debt that's already too high and how that crowds out investment and the cost that that imposes on our economy in terms of less economic growth, which means fewer opportunities for especially younger individuals to realize their version of the American dream, to attain financial security for themselves and to such a degree that they can also help support their communities. But there's also a moral implications which is that um, the government would like us to believe that the national debt is very different from household debt. Uh, we shouldn't really think of it as a family's budget or family debt. Um, but what the key difference really is that um, the government doesn't have a, a limited life expectancy in the way that people do. And the the government is able to impose the burden of today's borrowing of the debt that they incur on future generations, which t- which tends not to be true for the individual. If um, your parents deeply indebted themselves, that doesn't mean that you as their child have to inherit that debt. But when it comes to the federal government debt, that is very much true. Uh, the debt that previous generations have incurred, uh, we carry that load today. The interest costs from that debt um, being that specific cost that we pay every day, and the reduced economic growth from that high debt burden that drags down growth because of investment, because of overconsumption, overproductivity, uh, increases from investments, um, all of those are costs that we pay today. So the reason to think about a fiscal restraint that's anchored in the Constitution is to get at that problem where uh, democracies have a tendency towards deficit finance, and especially strong um, countries that have their own currencies, like the United States, because there's no real risk of default in the traditional sense of the US simply refusing to honor its debts, or what we saw in Greece, where they were unable to service their debt. But we have a very different and also very real risk, which is uh Federal Reserve policy lose monetary policy to sustain these low interest rates uh, that can create inflation. And of course the risk of higher taxes in the future uh from today's borrowing is also very real. So a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution is a um, is a nonpartisan policy. What it says is That as a country, we should make a fiscal commitment to prudence, to being uh, fiscally responsible. And uh, during the founding of the United States, and basically leading up to the 50s, there was an informal fiscal constitution in the United States, even though it wasn't anchored in the actual U.S. Constitution. It was understood by members of both parties that debt matters that it imposes a cost burden on younger and future generations, and that we should live uh, within our generation's means. So you didn't see a huge run-up in debt except during times of um, extreme crises like World War II. But now we're at that same level of debt as a percentage of GDP, and we're on an upward trajectory not because of crisis, though If when we have the next economic crisis, I'm sure it will run up even faster, but because of structural factors of uh, program designs, especially entitlement programs, but then also the fact that Congress keeps passing bills, including just yesterday, um, that keep adding to the deficit. Um, So, yes, I think a balanced budget amendment uh, might very well be necessary for long-run sustainability in the United States.
3: Now, of course, I know you've heard this argument before, but there are those who say, well, but a balanced budget amendment is too constraining. And what happens when we do go into a crisis, or how does this help us get out of a recession if you have something like a balanced budget amendment? How do you answer that?
1: Yes, so um, there are a a couple of countries that have adopted what I might call a smart balanced budget amendment. It is a uh, balanced budget amendment that is responsive to the business cycle. So the idea is you don't have to necessarily balance every penny every year, um, but that over the course of a normal business cycle with the fluctuations of the economy, you should maintain Balance over time. And um, some countries that come to mind there are Germany and Switzerland with their so-called debt breaks. And then Sweden has also adopted uh, very successful fiscal policies. Even though overall they spend more and they tax more, their budget has been um, in relative balance. So there are ways to address those concerns. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have any fiscal restraints at all. Because the idea, of course, that we should borrow more and have the government spend more during times of economic crisis and weakness. It's a very Keynesian idea. It's the idea that the government needs to step up when private demand has fallen to try and generate some of that uh, demand. It has its own uh, problems. This is not uh, necessarily true that that actually works. But say you subscribe to that theory. On the On the other end of it, you're supposed to be paying for those deficits during the good economic times, like right now we should be uh, generating budgetary surpluses to begin reducing the debt load. What we have, though, is that um, everyone is is a Keynesian during economic crises. The government needs to spend more, borrow more. And then when when times are good, uh, politicians continue to spend and borrow because – hey, look, there's all this money, the economy's doing well, why not? And that's the problem. There's no paying back. There's just more and more debt generation. You touched on on Switzerland.
3: I think a lot of people hear about Greece and Spain and a lot of countries that aren't doing so well, but we rarely hear about the economic su- success stories. Speak a little bit more about Switzerland and what they've actually done and why their debt break, as they call it, why that's enforceable in a way that our debt limit doesn't seem to be here.
1: Yeah. So, um, Switzerland adopted their debt break in the 90s after suffering a severe financial and fiscal crises where their debt was growing steadily and their deficit was very high. Uh, since then, they've actually not only balanced their budgets, but have also generated surpluses and are now uh, considering tax cuts, um, in order to return those that, that surplus uh, to its people. What makes Switzerland really special is um, they have a, a very active democratic process. Most of their political decisions are actually made by a popular referendum, including uh, the debt break. And that passed at that time with 85% public support. Um, the Swiss are very aware of their debt break, and um of the requirement for the government to live within its means to be prudent and fiscally responsible. One uh, factor that contributes to it is that uh, the Swiss people, unlike Americans, don't uh, have their Uh, Federal income uh, and payroll taxes automatically deducted from every paycheck, where you don't even see the money ever coming into your pocket. But they actually have to show up and pay their taxes every quarter the way that businesses do in the United States with their tax authorities, which means that the Swiss are also very keenly aware of the tax burden that they pay. And so they pay closer attention to their government's actions because they feel that pain, that cost. Um, And so they're holding their lawmakers accountable. I actually, I, I went to Switzerland and I talked with their Ministry of Finance because I was wondering how is this uh, debt break enforced because we have the debt limit. Lawmakers continue to evade it. I think one reason that our debt limit isn't working but their debt break is working is that um, the debt limit is confusing to people. It's also confusing to lawmakers because the debt limit binds after they've already authorized spending. Spending and borrowing decisions are not aligned, especially uh, when Congress doesn't actually pass a budget resolution, which they haven't done in several years now. And so they don't face the trade-offs of the decisions that they make. Our lawmakers don't. And neither do the American people because so much of our current spending is actually borrowed and the costs of which will apply to future generations. So the American people demand more government than they're willing to pay for because they're not paying for the cost of it. Those are key differences uh, between the U.S., Uh, in Switzerland. So in order to have a more robust fiscal rule like the Swiss debt break in the United States, I think it's important that the American people can understand it. So it needs to be simple enough. It needs to be uh, transparent so that the American people have a chance to hold their lawmakers accountable Mm -hmm. and they can uh, distinguish a spending increase from a spending cut, which uh, is not always easy in the US with the baseline budgeting that Congress engages on. And it needs to be. I think it needs to be responsive as well to to business cycles, so that it it isn't it isn't circumvented during time of economic crises, which would certainly happen. There would be pressure to borrow more, and then we also have automatic stabilizing policies like unemployment benefits that would require more government spending. But you can build that into your um, smart balanced budget amendment, your smart fiscal rule, such that it allows for that additional borrowing, but also then constrains and tightens uh, spending and deficits during times of economic growth, like right now, where the private sector doesn't need the government to play such a, an important and big role. So we want to get your questions in as well. And
3: I'll remind those who are watching us uh, via online, you can send your questions in via to speaker at heritage.org, speaker at heritage.org, and we'll get to your questions. But let me just come back and say, okay, here we've laid out some not easy solutions, but definitely doable solutions, maybe not politically doable in some cases. Uh, But what happens if we don't start making these necessary changes? And Mark, let me come back to you on that.
4: Well, you know, I increasingly think that um, we're unlikely to get a big solution unless there's some kind of crisis.
3: And what um, does that kind of crisis look like?
4: It it could be a financial crisis, you know, interest rates spike a percent or two. That means that there are $15 trillion of outstanding bonds. Everyone wants to sell them to get the higher interest rate one, you know, yada, yada, yada. We have 2007 all over again. But no one's big enough to bail out the U.S. government. Um, With that being said, I think as scary a scenario is if we don't have a fiscal crisis because they're most likely, at least for the next few decades, the consequence isn't going to be um, some acute event. It's going to be an incremental erosion um, of our economic growth, of our sort of fiscal democracy, right, our ability to allocate new resources, um, uh, of our interest rates. And that's going to hurt everyone a little bit, but it's not going to hurt anyone acutely. Um, and it's going to build over time, and it's, it's sort of like you know the, the, the frog in the boiling water. We may not notice until it it's too
3: late. And what does too late look like? Uh,
4: again, it, it, it could be the you know seemingly benign situation that we're 30 years in the future and average income per person is $10,000 lower than it otherwise could be, and we we may not know we missed it, but we kind of feel like there's something wrong. Or it could be that we hit one of those kinds of crises, like the financial crisis I just described or an inflation crisis. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to sit here and say like we're going to default in five years if we don't do anything. Um, it's it's equally likely and maybe scarier, that there won't be a crisis event. It'll just be a slow erosion of of all the things that we care about.
3: David, I mean, you've spent time on the Hill as well. What what do you think it will take for members of both parties to actually get to a point where we're ready to start implementing perhaps not the entire blueprint for balance, as much as we'd love to see that, but some, some parts of it that actually would make a true difference?
0: One of the things that led me to come to Washington was the Tea Party movement, uh, in you know, 2009, 2010, which genuinely changed the discussion about spending and deficits for a time. And many of those members are still in Congress, are still having an impact on the course of things. If we have another political movement along those lines, whether it's from the right, the left, the center, or whether it spans the traditional divide, but if it's focused on deficits, which genuinely, that should not be a partisan issue, it can force lawmakers to wake up. Barring that, I believe that the looming bankruptcy of programs like Social Security, within 15 years, we're not talking about 30, 40 years, we're talking within 15 years, if changes are not made to Social Security, benefits will be dramatically reduced, and that's going to force us to confront it. Either we have to run up catastrophically high deficits, we have to cut benefits in a way that I don't think anyone wants to see, or we would have to raise taxes across the board. None of those are pleasant, and that's why the sooner we take action, we do, if we do things now, it builds up over time such that you're not causing anyone real... Noticeable pain. If you wait, then those solutions start to become very painful.
3: Ramin, I have same question for you. What, what do you think is the, or what are we running up against that you think would actually get folks to over on Capitol Hill to make to make a change?
1: Yeah. So in both cases in Switzerland and uh, Sweden, it actually took a financial crisis in the 90s. Now, we had that crisis in 2008, and uh, Mark was on the super committee at the time that that came out of uh, that crisis in the Tea Party movement demanding more fiscal responsibility. But the actual uh, bill that was passed, the Budget Control Act, only worked uh, modestly for a number of years, and since then it's basically, the Budget Control Act is basically dead. And regardless, it will expire in 2021, and there's no fiscal restraints on Congress that are effective. Existing budget rules um, aren't applied consistently. They're most most often waived. David talked about it with PAYGO. Um, the Budget Control Act caps keep getting circumvented. The first uh, few years, there, there were actually attempts made to offset the additional spending to pay for the increase in the caps. Um, that went totally out the window with the last deal that increased spending by $300 billion over two years. And now they're talking about a potentially $400, $400 billion deal. And um, as um, Mark's group calculated, that could add more than $2 trillion over the next 10 years. Like, we're talking a serious uh, money here. And um, lawmakers keep getting away with it. Uh, the American people aren't paying close enough attention. They don't care enough because the economy is doing well so they can't really tell that there is a problem. And during the f- financial crises, people were looking for uh, scapegoats for um, causes of the crisis. What was it that was causing it? And, and one of the concerns was um, the bailouts and then we had the run-up uh, in the debt. But what we really need is we need to recognize that uh politicians and the American people, their constituents, have a proclivity to um, demand more spending, to spend more than they're willing to pay for. And we need to put restraints on that because we've lost um, that – um that moral limit, that it's not okay to burden younger and future generations with higher taxes and higher debt for consumption today. Borrowing should be limited for the purpose of investment uh, that actually – pays off over time, um, and responding to um, major disasters, wars, and crises. But even in those instances, if you look at uh, Switzerland, for example, when they borrow more because they have to respond to a crisis, they have a notional account where they keep track of that deficit spending that they generated, um, sort of like what PAYGO was intended to do, except we don't uh, abide by it. And um, so... I really think that we need to change the rules of the game to restrain politicians from both parties um, to, to over-leverage our country and to mortgage. I, I really think it's mortgaging the future of younger uh, and future generations that have no say in the political process today. It's, it's immoral and um, it's corrupt. Uh, but it w- it's up to us um, to restrain lawmakers and to put uh, rules on them that make it impossible for them to, um, to 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 lead us into such a catastrophic future. But what it will look like? Higher taxes uh lower wages, uh less economic growth, which means less income for the average American. And the concern, of course, is as the government impedes economic growth and opportunity, unfortunately people will also look to government for solutions and it fuels the growth in the government and it just makes um everything uh, worse. And I think in part because the government has overextended itself, it's not performing the functions that are its core constitutional functions as well as it should because it's involved in too many areas. That should be the purview of the private sector and state and local government, many of which we identify in Blueprint for Palance. People are increasingly dissatisfied with um, the services they receive from their government. And so they're looking for uh, solutions, which is one of the reasons we're seeing this um, appeal of socialism now. So I, I do worry about the future of this country in big way, our political future, as well as our economic future, if we don't Uh, rein in out-of-control spending and debt. All right, let's open up this discussion
3: to those of you in the audience. I know they probably have a lot of great questions out here, and if you just raise your hand, we'll bring a microphone to you. I only ask that you would please just identify yourself and who you're with right in the very back right there.
0: Thanks for the great uh, discussion guys um Chris Edwards at uh, Cato Institute my question is for Mark uh, uh and by the way your organization Mark does does great work my my question is to follow up uh, a bit on what Romina was talking about D- does your organization support any kind of constitutional limit on deficits or debt or spending um there are, I mean, personally, I can see pros and cons. I mean, one of the cons might be you put in a balanced budget requirement or a spending cap into the Constitution, and then, uh, you know, Congress just cheats on it, and then you've degraded the value of, you know, con- the constitutional authority. So I can see pros and cons. I was just wondering whether your organization has come out in favor uh, oh, one way or question. the other.
4: So um organizationally, we haven't taken a view on a balanced budget amendment. Uh, one of my colleagues, Kirk Couchman right there, has – um, written several business cycle and related balanced budget amendments. So we're, we're certainly very aware of the issues. We do support fiscal rules. I mean, if you look internationally, if you look at, um, the state level, if you, even if you look at the private sector, um, we think fiscal rules can work, but they work best when they are reinforcing an existing political agreement. Um, you know, Rudy Penner on our board likes to say, the process isn't the problem. The problem is the problem. Doesn't, we could have ten balanced budget amendments. If the policymakers don't want to balance the budget, they're going to find a way not to. So the most important thing is, let's 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 get on with the process of identifying the spending cuts, identifying the the revenue, uh, making it work, and then we can put processes in, in place to to kind of hold that deal and to give policymakers something to blame for their decisions. But if they don't if they don't want to do it, they're not going to.
0: Hi. Rachel Gressler with the
3: Heritage Foundation. Along those lines of policymakers not wanting to address the problem,
4: I find it particularly troubling that instead of looking at ways that we can reduce the debt, a lot of people are talking about ways that we can increase it through everything from universal daycare, Medicare for all, free college for everybody. I mean, what would that do to the debt? And is that even possible for the government to be providing those types of services?
0: I mean, in the near term, obviously you can run up deficits—you know, hundred, you, know, you know, in the billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars—and if you're you know, paying that interest over ten years, you're not going to notice it right away. But as Mark said, it builds up over time. But additionally, the way things stand right now, we're not looking at the near term of. Only One trillion dollar deficits. We're looking at it going to 1.5 and then $2 trillion. And if you set up programs like Medicare for all and you don't massively increase taxes in a way that would be required to pay for it fully, $3 trillion annual deficits are not sustainable, period. And again, we're looking – Not 20, 30 years out. We're looking at just 10 years out. Politicians like to talk big, but it is dramatically irresponsible for leaders to make big promises without a way to pay for it when things are as bad as they are.
4: So uh, my organization, every four years, by total coincidence, decides to score the presidential (laughs) candidates. Um, last time around in 2016, you know, the, obviously the focus was on the um, general election, but we also did a comprehensive score of Sanders' Sanders' policies. I like to think of 2016 as the sort of conservative small thinking Bernie Sanders, right, compared to what um, what we're hearing for for 2020. But by by our estimates, and a lot of this was driven by the fact his Medicare for All cost about 25 trillion and only had 11 trillion of tax increases. But we estimated at the time that his plan would have increased debt to GDP by about, to about 150% of GDP within a decade. Um, and that's without accounting for sort of the negative economic effects. That's just within a decade. Um, so clearly that's, uh, I mean, that would be 50% higher than our historic record, um, and, and it's not something we can afford. But I'm actually more concerned in some ways with the underlying um, structural deficits, even under current law we'd hit that 150% within 30 years. If we assume the tax cuts are extended and some version of the budget deal that's being kicked around is passed, um, we'll have debt at 200% of GDP within 30 years. I mean, um, there's only one country in in the world that has ever sustained a debt like that, and that's Japan. Uh, CBO won't look past 30 years because it's a mess, but CRFB is not constrained. And we've looked at 75 years out, and we found that on that path we'd be at 600% of GDP. That's, again, That's no Medicare for All. It's no universal daycare. That's just our current course. There's no international. There's no historic. There's no theoretical precedent or basis to suggest that is possible. And so this will not happen. It's unsustainable. The question is, what is going to cause it to stop, and how painful is it going to be?
3: up to the front, then we'll come to back again.
4: uh, Josh Gonzalez at National Taxpayers Union Foundation. Um, I just want to ask sort of about uh, the course of future monetary policy, and uh, I know we talked a little bit about mo- uh, modern monetary theory. I just wanted to know how this uh, future potential debt crisis is going to affect the way monetary policy is conducted in the United States, you know now that we're already near the zero lower uh, zero lower bound and things like that. Mm-hmm.
1: I highly recommend a recent article by George Selgin of the Cato Institute in politico and the agenda but basically what we have is uh we've entered a new normal where the federal reserve is um using crisis policies uh but continuing them even though we're well out of the crisis now and coming back to Japan uh Japan was really um the first uh, central bank to adopt uh, these very creative policies to try and um, inflate asset prices, and this was something that um, Ben Bernanke also was very clear about in the United States context, which was the Fed was going to buy up asset, um, they were going to engage in quantitative easing, buying up U.S. Treasury bonds, in fact, about one-third of the uh, debt Created since the Great Recession is held by the Federal Reserve now. They've accumulated this massive asset portfolio, which is completely out of the ordinary. And initially, they said they were going to wind it down, but now they're no longer saying that. And in addition, as they were generating all this additional money through quantitative easing, um, they wanted to curb inflation risk, so they started paying uh, interest on excess reserves to keep the velocity of the money supply down so that all the money they generated wouldn't actually flow through the economy and um, create price increases and inflation. Um, this is very troubling because the the Fed is supposed to be independent uh, but it's, it's been engaging in monetary policy that has been very conducive to lose fiscal policy because it's keeping interest rates uh, low. It's buying up a lot of government debt, which means that the debt that we actually sell in the market, that the Fed isn't buying up, um, there's less of it. So that investors, bondholders don't demand as high interest rates. So that's keeping uh, interest rates uh, down. And yet we've generated all this additional money, which normally would uh, generate inflation and higher uh, prices. And mon- uh, modern monetary theory is basically saying, let's keep doing this and do it um, on, on steroids. And um, I come from Germany. This is another country that has experience with uh, hyperinflation. Uh, that's really the end risk is uh, default through inflation, default on the value of our money. And the, um, the dollar has lost a tremendous amount of value over time because of even modest inflation, and then there were some periods where the U.S. suffered steeper inflation. Uh, but that's that's a that's a real risk that the Fed, instead of being that independent entity concerned with stabilizing uh, the U.S. money supply, uh, will continue to engage in this highly potentially inflationary policy in the long run. Um, that is also. Uh, fueling the growth um, in, in the debt. Um, and once inflation strikes, it is a phenomenon that uh, doesn't necessarily creep up on you, but it can get out of control very quickly, and then you find yourself in a, in a severe uh, economic crisis with uh, austerity measures and uh, a tremendous amount of pain for especially lower-income uh, individuals and the most vulnerable in society. That's a situation uh, we should absolutely avoid. Can somebody, you anybody here can pick it,
3: uh, for those watching who don't know what austerity means and austerity measures, define that for us?
1: So the pictures you might um, have in your mind is um, people rioting in Greece, for example, because um, they lost their jobs, um, their pensions are cut back all of a sudden with no advance notice. Um Government services that they've relied on stop functioning entirely. Uh, those are extreme images and people rioting in the streets. That's that's oftentimes what austerity ends up uh, looking like. It always depends on on the country and how it's being carried out, but it's basically sudden, dramatic changes in people's incomes and opportunities, um, rather than gradual policy reforms, which is what we're recommending in the blueprint. And
0: qu- quite oftentimes. Uh... Certain, uh, commentators and analysts who are a little more comfortable with big deficits and big spending will try to say that anything that would rein in spending and deficits is austerity, trying to link sensible fiscal policy with dramatic change, uh, you know, society, you know, impacting changes. And that frankly makes a, our job a lot harder
3: and then we'll come over
0: here. Hi. Kurt Couchman with the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Um, I wanted to ask about enforcement. We have the debt limit. We have PAYGO. We have the Budget Control Act caps, and they aren't working for the macro picture. What are the Swiss, the Germans, the Swedes doing differently, and are there lessons that could apply to over here?
1: Yeah. I think the big difference is that you actually have a, uh, a fiscal commitment that is recognized, that uh, exists outside of the law, and then is codified in the law. What we lack in the United States right now is even in a bipartisan agreement that this um, excessive borrowing and the high and rising debt is a problem and that it's bad. There isn't actually agreement on that, um, and so we lack that. Recognition that we should live within our own means. Because enforcement, if you look at it in, in Switzerland and Sweden, it actually relies primarily on lawmakers abiding by the rules that um, they're bound by. And while um, there can be automatic spending cuts like sequestration, which was part of the Budget Control Act, Um, they avoid that by living within the rules to begin with. There's no court that comes in and enforces the debt break, for example. And I don't think we would want that kind of a rule in the United States either. We don't want judicial enforcement. But what we do want is uh, a bipartisan agreement to fiscal prudence, um, to balancing the budget over time, codifying that in law, And I think it would help to have it anchored in the Constitution as well. But enforcement would ultimately rely on the American people holding their lawmakers accountable, holding their feet to the fire, paying attention when if they violate the rule, understanding that there is such a rule, that it exists for a reason. Um, But we would we would um, we would still have to be reliant on our lawmakers to abide by the rule.
5: Uh, my name is Emmanuel uh, Emeliano with the Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven. Uh, my question to the panel is this. Um, do you envisage any external shocks like um, the rise of another competing uh, global reserve currency or uh, likely conflicts that might um necessitate the US ramping up its uh, defense budget uh, dramatically and um, if any of those were to happen i talk about the rise of uh, another competing reserve currency because then i think that will affect the appetite of people who buy uh, us uh, debt and i think it will also uh, limit the 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 room to print money if you know, you know, if uh, people uh, were tempted to do that. So if any of those uh, kinds of things were to happen, uh, how do you see that affecting this uh, issue of our rising uh, debt?
4: Okay, so you talked about two different types of shocks. The one is, do we have some kind of shock that sh- sharply increases our spending, like a new defense need or a recession? And um, we're clearly less prepared for that kind of shock than we were in the past. You know, when we entered the Great Recession, our debt was at less than 40% of GDP, right around its historic average, and we almost doubled it. We roughly doubled it to fight the Great Recession, and we had the room to do so. If we were to raise the debt by an equivalent amount today, we would be above World War II levels in in debt by the public. Doesn't mean we can't do it, but I imagine there's a lot of less political appetite, and I imagine that. Um, there could be economic consequences. So our fiscal space certainly is less than it was a few years ago. Um, As to what if we have some kind of shock related to our debt, like a change in reserve currency, um, I guess it's hard for me to imagine that being a shock, and it's easier for me to imagine that being sort of a gradual change. And that, in a perverse way,
5: that might be a good
4: thing. Um, If there's a gradual move in reserve currency, our interest rates might go up gradually. You know, we saw in the 90s the rising interest rates might rally some political – people hate paying money on interest on the debt. It's such a waste. There might be some political movement around the higher interest rates, and that actually could lead us to a better solution. Um, If we were to have a shock in interest rates, I do worry that with $15 of outstanding debt, that would cause some kind of global financial crisis. Um, That that really does scare me. But um, it's hard – you know, looking around the world, it's hard to see a global currency that sort of would rise in a year to be the reserve currency. It seems more like it would be a gradual movement. And and that's something, hopefully, that would wake politicians up.
3: questions?
0: Yes, sir. I was uh, wondering if you could talk about uh, publicly held debt versus
3: gross debt versus total unfunded liabilities and the differences between these
1: measures and how we can reinforce these differences to both uh, policymakers, and the public? So um, the publicly held debt, um, what is it, about $15 trillion now, that is the debt the United States government has borrowed roughly in credit markets, and that is uh, approaching 80% of U.S. Uh, GDP now. And then the gross federal debt, that includes – Money that um, the federal government has borrowed from agencies within itself. So the biggest um, one there is the Social Security Trust Fund, which has um, recorded three trillion in assets in U.S. government bonds. But at the time that money was collected, it was spent immediately, and then um, government bonds were issued uh, in its place. So it's money we owe. Um, to the Social Security program, and then there are a couple of other similar uh, trust funds for military pensions, etc. That is your gross uh, federal debt, but both of these are basically static measures, just looking at what do we owe today. It doesn't take into consideration the obligations that the federal government has on the books that they have incurred based on uh, promises and uh, statutes and law and expectations that people have for what they will get paid. And if you include some of those obligations, the ones that the uh, federal government Um, provides on a regular basis are the ones uh, governed by trust funds. So Social Security and Medicare, they will give you 75-year projections. Uh, But even that doesn't take into consideration all of the other uh, uh, programs that um, the federal government is expected to spend money on in excess of what they will um, collect in taxes. One way of looking at it is to consider the so-called fiscal gap over a certain period of time or um, into infinity, and uh depending on the calculations there um Kotlikoff uh an economist uh, did 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 a calculation he updates every couple of years and he he looks at the fiscal gap uh, at around 200 trillion dollars in net present value terms meaning that's how much money we would need to invest today to have available um, to to pay out all those obligations um, it's 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 rather confusing because no business does its accounting the way that the uh, the federal government does just looking at uh, debt incurred already not the mortgage that you owe and what you'll have to pay over time um, but those I think would be the key key differences
4: yeah and I mean I think that each of those three measures has different values so I think Debt held by the public is the most macroeconomically meaningful. That tells us how much investment we've crowded out. That tells us what we're going to owe in interest payments. That's what's pushing up interest rates. Gross federal debt is the most legally meaningful. That determines the debt limit, give or take uh, some weird funds. Um, That's what they use for the budget committee. And unfunded liabilities is is the best, but I still think a very soft measure of our long-term obligations. I say soft both because – We can change those laws anytime and because 75 year, let alone infinite projections are by definition very bad, right? So it's a, but it's a soft measure to give us order of magnitude of how much we owe. So all three of those measures tell us different things and they're all important in their own way.
3: Final question for all of you. What, what have I not asked or has the audience not asked that you think is important for us to, to share?
1: I want to come back to a point that Mark made earlier, which is that, um, it looks like the time period for a grand bargain where lawmakers from both sides of the aisle will come together and fix the debt in a big way by making a number of entitlement reforms to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, disability all at once, and tax changes on the other side. There doesn't seem to be any appetite, especially in the partisan environment that we're in. So what do we need to be focused on? Incremental changes, but that means that Every fiscal deadline that we will face uh, this year, including the potential uh, for a cap deal, a, a, a massive increase in defense and non-defense discretionary spending, we need to be um, vigilant. And we need to demand that any such deal needs to be fully offset, needs to be paid for, it, must not add to the deficit, or it's a no deal. Uh, Same with the debt limit. That's another uh, leverage point and opportunity for lawmakers to um, heed that wake-up call that uh, we've run up debt too high, and the problem is not just how much debt we've already incurred, but the bigger problem really is how much we will incur if we don't change uh, programs now. So uh, kind of like when you run up against your credit limit, you shouldn't just go and get another credit card and roll roll over all your debt and keep racking up more. But you should spend some time thinking about, Okay, what am I spending my money on? Where can I cut back? Do I need to get another job to bring in more income? What do I need to do to um, have a sustainable budget picture? Uh, But just yesterday, lawmakers passed a a bill, a disaster package, that uh, did not comply with the rules in place for what should qualify as emergency spending. Clearly, the the, the crises that occurred, they were no longer urgent. They weren't sudden. This was responding to disasters that happened in 2017. There is no justifiable reason for lawmakers not to pay for that package, but to add to the deficit to do so. That's what they did. And there were some lawmakers that stood up against it and said, we need to at least debate it and have an actual vote on it. Um, And that was important to shed some light and bring some transparency to that debate, but we need, we need more of that and we sort of have a small group of uh, fiscal warriors to keep their eye on Congress and try to let folks know when they're uh, debating these packages that will add to the deficit. And we're looking at a potentially $400 billion increase in spending if this caps deal goes through with a, 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 a much greater increase in the debt limit, um, $2 trillion or more, uh, likely they would try to get past the election so that I don't have to debate difficult issues. But we shouldn't let our lawmakers get away so easily. We should hold them accountable and confront them with those difficult issues, including confronting the national debt. David, final comment?
0: One of the things I think is really important for everyone to try to understand, and maybe I should have started with this, is the size and scope of the numbers and what they mean in human terms. So if we're talking about $1 trillion in benefits that a pol- political leader is promising, well, an average – a typical income in America is about $50,000 a year. That means someone getting up in the morning, going to work, putting in that 9-to-5 grind, getting up the next morning and doing it again for an entire year for $50,000. It takes 20,000 people times $50,000 to produce billion in the economy. So if we're spending, say, $16 billion, well, that's 16 times $50,000 times 20,000 people. It adds up really quickly. And if we're talking about a trillion dollars, so for instance, $1 trillion in deficits, which we expect either this year or next year, that's 20, 20 million people's Worth of effort that we're adding to the debt, which means that when a politician talks about benefits, they need to be held accountable by the public to what those costs are in human terms.
4: Mark, so I, I think those of us that care and worry about the debt need to fight a three front, front war right now. Um, on the one hand, we need to push back against what I call the debt deniers. Um, uh, these are folks that have decided debt doesn't matter or doesn't matter very much. They take kernels of truth, like, yes, we print on our own currencies, so we can't default. Yes, lower interest rates mean debt is not as costly as when interest rates are higher. And they use them to make um, broad points that give aid and comfort to politicians that basically want to give away stuff for free. And it's just not true, and we need to win that intellectual argument. At the same time, we need to stop the politicians from, from making the situation worse. When you're in a hole, the first rule is you stop digging, right? And yet we're debating $2 trillion, potentially, of defense and non-defense increases, $50 billion of tax breaks to corporations that expired two – zombie tax incentives. They expired two years ago. We're talking about bringing them back. It makes no sense. We need to pay for things we're going to do, and if it's not worth paying for, it's not worth doing. Um, And lastly, we need to actually deal with our long-term structural challenges. I think a good place to start, which I am seeing some movement in Congress, is health care, or is at least broad agreement that we need to get um, cost growth under control, They're not going to agree on all the things we have to do, but if we could move in the right direction to get the delivery system reform right, to get drugs, drug prices, drug costs under control, that would be a good start. We also are almost out of time on Social Security. You know, 15 years means that a young retired 62 today is going to be 78 when the 16 years, when the trust fund runs out. 78. They're still going to be alive. We cannot guarantee full benefits under current law for people retiring today, and We're running out of time for those kinds of of solutions. So um, debt matters. Stop digging. Fix the problems. And we have to do all three of these things simultaneously um, at a time that it's very politically tough to do any of them.
3: Romina, David, Mark, thank you all very much. Thank you all very much for your questions. I want to remind again everyone who's watching online, if you would like to learn more about the Blueprint for Balance, go to heritage.org. You will see a Blueprint for Balance there. looks very much like David's holding up. I encourage you to check that out. Thank you all, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you.
4: Thanks, Thank you were really you. good. That Those was questions great. were really good. Oh, wow. I
3: mean, about that, yet.